Well, good morning. It is so good seeing all of you guys. Welcome. As you make your way back to your seats, go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy, for your grace. Lord, I thank you for the incredible, amazing love that you have shown us that while we were still sinners, you sent your son to die for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for rescuing us, for redeeming us from the penalty and power of sin. Lord, thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit that pours out your love into our hearts. Your spirit that empowers us. Your spirit that illuminates truth to us. So that when we open up your word, that we can read it, that we can understand it, that we can be convicted by it and be transformed by it. And Lord, I pray that as we open up your word, can you speak to us, make yourself known, open up our eyes, ears, hearts, and minds. As we talk about love and exercising our spiritual gifts, Lord, can you help us to be honest can you, can you reveal to us areas in our lives that maybe we are unloving, some sin that we need to confess in the areas that we are unloving? And Lord, can you help us not to walk out of here discouraged, but help us to walk out of here saying, what a great Savior we have who has truly loved us, and we can love because you have first loved us. And may it be something that we strive to become, that we become what we already are in you holy and loving. So come, Lord, and speak to us. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Um, And so in our text, uh, Matt kind of started last week and did an incredible job as he unpacked chapter 12 for us. And he started to address the ninth of 10 major issues, uh, really the desiring and the using of spiritual gifts. And so the church of Corinth wrote uh, to Paul about the the use of spiritual gifts. And we really see like maybe the problem was appears that some of the Corinthian Christians were sinfully desiring the flashy spiritual gifts, the miraculous spiritual gifts of speaking in tongues and then by wanting that and exercising that they started looking down on the other brothers and sisters that might not have those flashy spiritual gifts as if their gifts are more superior and the other people's gifts are a little inferior and, and so last week the definition that may that that Matt gave us uh, from Grudem he says that spiritual gifts is any ability that is empowered by the Holy Holy Spirit and used in the ministry of the church. And so last week we learned that God himself is a giver of these diverse spiritual gifts to a united church. And what's the purpose of these spiritual gifts? The purpose of these spiritual gifts is for the common good of the church where we encourage one another, where we point one another to Christ. It is to demonstrate the unity of the church through the diversity of gifts. And what's the power of these spiritual gifts? It's the triune God. God is the one who empowers us. God is the one who distributes these gifts as he wills and as he chooses. And so basically the point that Paul was making 
in the church wrestling with these spiritual gifts, thinking that one gift is more important than the other and really creating a spiritual hierarchy. Here's the point that Paul is making. He is saying like, if God is the one who distributes a variety of spiritual gifts according to his will, and if he is the one that empowers us with these spiritual gifts, and if these spiritual gifts and the purpose of these spiritual gifts is for the common good to build up the church and to display the diversity of the church that's supposed to be united, then really it's foolish for you to elevate one gift over another. Because again, who distributes these gifts? God does. Who empowers these gifts? God does. What's the purpose of these gifts? To build up the church. So why in the world would you elevate one gift over another, saying this gift is more important because it might be more visible than the other gift? And indirectly, really what Paul is saying is that's foolish. Quit acting that way. Now, as we get to chapter 13, it's important for us to understand chapter 13 in the original context because all of us know what chapter 13 is. What's 1 Corinthians chapter 13? The love chapter. Whether you're a believer, even a non-believer, everybody's like, oh yeah, I know that one. Love is patient. Love is kind. Yeah, I know that one. Uh, Because many of us, we read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and many of us assume um, that this really has to do with a loving relationship between a husband and a wife. We, We have this verse read at wedding ceremonies and it really is a beautiful passage thinking that this text primarily applies in relationships between a husband and a wife and I'm not saying it doesn't it indirectly does apply and show us what love looks like between a husband and a wife but that is not the primary context what's the primary context here what is Paul talking about in chapter 12 Paul is talking about spiritual gifts and the purpose of spiritual gifts and where they come from And now what he's going to do, he's going to show them how those spiritual gifts are supposed to be exercised in love. So more than likely, when the church of Corinth first read this letter, they didn't say, they didn't read chapter 13 and say, oh man, what a sweet passage. How beautiful this passage is. What profound language Paul is using. More than likely, they saw this passage as a spiritual spanking. Maybe the repentance said this, God, forgive us for being so unloving, for acting so ugly. And look how beautiful love is. So what Paul's going to show us that no matter what the spiritual gift the Spirit gives us and empowers us, this gift does not benefit anyone unless it is exercised in love. Now, love is not a spiritual gift, but love is essential in exercising that spiritual gift. And what we're going to also learn is that love is more important than a spiritual gift. So let's look at our passage, but I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, but the second sentence in verse 31 to show you how they link together. Look at verse 31, the second part. It says, and I will show you an even better way, okay? So Paul's been talking about spiritual gifts. Then what Paul is saying is, I want to show you a better way and how you ought to exercise this spiritual gift. So what's the better way? 
Let's look at uh, chapter 13, verse 1. It says this. If I speak human or angelic tongues but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so that I can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions and if I give over my body in order to boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. So right off the bat, well, what is Paul showing us? If you're taking notes, how do we exercise our spiritual gifts? Well, what's the best way? The best way of exercising our spiritual gifts, if you're taking notes, is the way of, the way of love. The best way of exercising spiritual gifts is the way of love. That's the main point he's, he's showing us. And he uses three illustrations to show them that without love, everything comes to nothing. It is a giant waste of time. The first one, he says this. If you have the most impressive speech, in other words, if you can articulate wonderful truths in such a profound way where you're captivating people and they can listen to you for hours and you don't have love, it amounts to nothing. In other words, it is a giant waste of time. Second one, he says, if you have the most impressive spiritual gift that everybody wants and love is absent, it amounts to nothing. It is a giant waste of time. If you offer the most impressive personal sacrifice, he even goes to the extreme. If you offer yourself as a martyr, in other words, you are dying on behalf of other people. That's pretty impressive. And yet there's no love involved. It amounts to nothing. It is a giant waste of time. So what does that mean for us? Well, in a practical way, you can serve in all kinds of ministries. You can exercise all of your spiritual gifts in an excellent manner. You can spend hours of serving and self-sacrificing. You can lead people. You can oversee churches in a dynamic way, and yet you are wasting your time if love is absent. In other words, if you're not motivated by love, if you're not exercising in the attitude of love, you're wasting your time. You're like, love for what? Well, first of all, love for God. That leads to a love for others that all amounts to nothing. So in other words, if you are not exercising your spiritual gift that's motivated by love in an attitude of love for God and love for others, you're wasting your time. It amounts to nothing. And here's what we have to understand. Like, you're like, okay, I have a spiritual gift. I'm going to exercise it. I'm supposed to do it in love. So what is love? Love is not an object that you can buy. It's not a status that you can reach. But rather, in this passage, is agape love. In other words, what it means, it's behaving in a loving way. Like, in other words... 
what love is and how we serve one another is behaving in a loving way. And so Paul is going to actually tell us what that looks like. And he's going to show love in 16 personified action verbs. So so here's what I want us to do. I'm not going to say anything profound uh, that's going to kind of blow your mind when it comes to having an attitude of love or behaving in a loving way. So here's what I want you to do, okay? As we're going through these 16 things, I was going to post it all on the screen, but I just feel like that's just too much. I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, can you show me an area where I might not be loving? And can you help me in working on that area? And this is what we're going to do. So I'm going to talk a little bit about it and try to apply it. It's not going to be profound. It's going to be really simple, okay? So let's read it and let's, let's look at the 16 uh, personified action verbs of what love is or what it means to behave in a loving way. Verse 4 is this. We're just going to read verse 4 to, to 7. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant. It's not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not irritable. It does not keep a record of wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love, in verse 8, never ends. So as we unpack this passage, I don't think about your spouse I want you to think about in the original context, in the context of the local church. The Lord, if you're in Christ, has given you spiritual gifts. He's empowered you with these spiritual gifts. And your responsibility, and the question last week is, are you using your spiritual gifts? Are you exercising your spiritual gifts? And why must you exercise your spiritual gifts? Because who benefits from it? The body, the church, okay? So now the question I'm going to ask you is, how are you exercising your spiritual gifts? Are you exercising it in love? In other words, you're motivated and you're behaving in a loving way as you're exercising your gifts. So that's how I want you to think as we look at this passage, okay? So if you want to look around, look at the people around you because those are the ones you're serving. And those are the ones that sometimes you're going to have to ask the Lord, help me in this. Because it's hard. Let's just be honest. Sometimes it's hard serving you. Sometimes it's hard serving me. It is hard. So let's look at the first one, what love is. Love is patient. Some of your translations, it says forbearing long suffering. Um, I don't like the word patience because it doesn't really tell me much. I love the word long suffering. In other words... Love is me suffering with you for a long time. How long? A long time. That's what patience is. I am suffering with you. I've already told you not to do it. I've shown you a better way. And what do you end up doing? You're doing it again. So what am I doing? In your pain... I'm coming alongside of you and I am suffering with you for a long time. So when you're serving people, serving people, there's never frustrations with serving people because they get it. You tell them once and they say yes. No, serving one another 
at times can be frustrating. And what does that require of us? To be long-suffering, to come alongside of them and suffer with them a long time. So the question is, as you're exercising your spiritual gifts, are you suffering with your brothers and sisters for a long time? And I know for us type A people, we want to say, can I put a perimeter on long? I don't know. We can't because it says long. How long? Long. Love is patient. If you want to mark that, you can. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you. The second one is love is kind. That's a word we love in our culture. Be kind. What does it mean to be kind? Does it mean to always smile? No, to be kind means to be merciful and compassionate. If you really think about uh, the, the idea of being merciful, um, when God shows us mercy, he's not giving us what we deserve. In other words, he's absorbing the cost. Instead of kind of reflecting the cost, like, like kind of like a wall, you throw a ball and the wall just bounces, uh, the ball just bounces off the wall and hit you right in the head. That's not being merciful, but being merciful is absorbing the pain. That's what being kind is. I'm absorbing the cost. I'm not retaliating. I'm not overcoming evil with evil, but rather I am overcoming evil with good. So being kind means that when I am serving people and maybe they're rude or maybe they are ungrateful, what do I do? I absorb it. I do not overcome evil with evil, but rather overcome evil with good. I'm compassionate. So let's just be honest. There are times that you're going to serve the body. And the body might not respond in the way you thought they should be responding. Or maybe the body treats you ill. Or maybe the body sins against you. What does it mean to be kind? It means to absorb. To overcome the evil of the body with good. Saying, you know, I'm not going to give you what you deserve. But I'm going to lovingly and compassionately serve you. So are you serving, exercising your spiritual gift in a kind manner where you're absorbing and overcoming evil with good? Third one, love does not envy most people say, I don't struggle with envy. I struggle with coveting. Um, there's there's between coveting and envy. Coveting is, I want what you have. Envy is, I'm angry that you have it. Coveting is, I want your truck because you have that truck. I wish I had that truck. Envy is saying, I am angry that you're driving that truck right now because you don't deserve it. That's envy. And if we're being honest, all of us are sometimes angry at what others have. And I think here's a great test. The Bible says to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Somebody that's envious cannot rejoice with those who are rejoicing, and they're rejoicing when those are weeping because they're saying, finally, there's justice. Finally, they're getting what they deserve. But serving in a loving way, in a non-envious way, is rejoicing when some people are getting the promotion. 
You're rejoicing with them. Even though you want promotion, you want to get on further with life, you're genuinely happy for them. And for those that are going through difficult times, what are you doing? You're weeping with them. Why? Because they are are weeping. So when you're serving, are you rejoicing with those that are rejoicing? And are you mourning with those who are mourning? Are you content with where the Lord has you and what the Lord has given you? Or are you angry because you wish you had what others had? And here's what happens. Like if you really do the opposite, like imagine we serve in a non-patient way, if we serve in an unkind way, if we serve in an envious way, like what's the results going to be? We're going to keep breaking one another down. But Paul says that's not the way of love. Love does not boast. The word boast means to heap praises on oneself, behaving like a windbag. I just love that, behaving like a windbag. You're just empty, puffed up full of air. In other words, when you're serving, who are you promoting? Are you promoting yourself and say, look at me, look at my talents, look at my giftedness, look at my intellect, look at my experience, look at my education? Or are you promoting Christ? Like in which way are you saying, you know what? I'm too educated to hold these dumb babies. I should be doing better stuff here. I should actually be on the platform right now. Or are you saying, what a gift it is to hold babies. To spare a, a young mom but from her wits end just to give her an hour and a half of a break so that she can sit under the word of God and be encouraged. When you're serving, who you're promoting, self or Christ. Goes hand in hand. Love is not boasting. Love is not arrogant, which is very similar to boasting. It translates a word that means to cause, to have an exaggerated self-conception puffed up to be made prior. In other words, you exaggerate about yourself. You're puffed up. Love is, is not rude or indecent. In other words, what it means is love outdoes showing honor for one another. Now, I think this is a weird thing because when, when Paul says in Romans 12 verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor, like, like at least the image I have in my head, which is the wrong image, by the way, it's like when somebody opens up the door, what do you do? No, 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 no. Let me open up the door or I'll go through and I'll run and open up the next door because that's showing honor. No, that's just tit for tat. That's not showing anybody honor. But maybe what's showing honor when somebody holds the door, you look him in the eye and say, thank you. I appreciate that. That's honoring somebody who is serving you. I think it's dishonoring somebody when you're refusing them to serve you. It's not rude. In other words, it's grateful when others are serving and they show them honor and appreciation saying, thank you that you're serving me. And I'm going to serve others as you have served me. Which one is the Holy Spirit prodding you in? Love does not insist on its own way. In other words, love is not self-seeking. 
It does, not seek the, it does not seek for the own interest, but rather for the interest of others. In other words, when you're serving, who are you thinking about? Are you thinking about what's best for you? Or are you thinking what's best for the church? Are you thinking about what you can gain from it, what you can benefit from it? Or are you thinking what others can gain and what others can benefit from it? Love does not insist on its own way, not looking out for the interest of self, but the interest of others also has this idea of living in harmony with others. Here's the reason why we're always in conflict with one another. Because I have certain interests and you have certain interests. And as long as our interests are the same, we can live in harmony. But the second our interests conflict one another, then what happens? We're now in a standoff. Either you're going to give up or I'm going to give up or I'm going to give your give up. But yet the most loving way is and living in harmony is saying, you know, I'm not here for the interest of myself. So, yeah, at times our interests might be in conflict. So I'm going to gladly lay down my interest for you. Not always expecting you to do it as well. It will be great. But that's not always the case because what does love calls us to do? Seek the interest of others. So when you're serving, you're not serving for your own benefit, but the benefit of others. Love is not irritable. In other words, minor offenses which are constantly going to happen should not cause explosive blow-up tempers. Like, like, I think here's what we have to understand with the church. Like, there's no such thing as a perfect church, and there's no such thing as a church that you're not going to get annoyed at. There's not going to be a covenant member in the church that you're not going to get annoyed at. Eventually, you're going to get annoyed at everybody. You're going to get annoyed at me. Right now, you might be annoyed at me. That's just the reality of it. But love does not blow up just because I'm annoyed at that person. Like serving is not always fun because we're serving sinful people in need of a savior. And we need to be reminded in the church that they are saved and that they are being saved. And I am saved that I am being saved. So right now I'm going to overlook some of those annoyances. I'm not going to blow up because that's not behaving in a loving way. Love is, is not resentful or keep records of wrong. In other words, it does not count evil. It does not strive to get even with others. Like, think about this. Why do you have to keep a record of wrong? The reason why I'm telling you is because you're waiting for an opportune time to use that over that person's head so you can get even. Let's just be honest. We see sitcom comedies, husband and wife's fight, and the second that Ray Barone kind of sees uh, De- De- Deborah acting in a, in a way, what, what does he do? Aha! I finally got you! And yet this is how we at the church sometimes act. Like, hey, I have a problem with you, let me bring out my list. And here's all the problems I have with you. It's 21 and counting. Not keeping a record of right and wrong is really a negative way of saying love is patient. Because when you keep a record of right and wrong, you are not being long-suffering. 
but rather you're recording it so that you can use it. And again, in serving the local church, people are going to mess up. You're going to mess up. You're going to say something dumb. You're going to offend somebody. You're going to have a bad day. You're going to lash out. You're going to be short-tempered. And how do we respond? We don't document it. But rather we overlook it for the time being until it becomes a common trend and a sin that we need to address. But maybe we chalk it up by, you had a bad day. That's okay. We all have. Love, and, and I think here's the more complicated ones. Love finds no joy. That, um, that's in verse 6. Love finds no joy and unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. In other words, love hates what is evil. You know why God hates sin? Because he's loving. If he wasn't loving, he wouldn't hate sin. This is why I think it's such a paradox in our culture. Love wins while we're celebrating what is evil. That's not love. Love hates evil. Love hates sin. It doesn't overlook sin and pretending it does not exist. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices in the truth. In other words, you know what a loving church does? A loving church, yes, is long-suffering. A loving church, yes, overlooks annoyances. It's not irritable. does not keep a record of wrong. But when a loving church sees a pattern of sin, it doesn't say, you know what, it's none of my business. I'm just not going to deal with it. But rather, it stands up and say, this is wrong. This is unrighteous. This is false. We are loving and we stand up for what is true, which means we must confront that sin. I'm going to give you a wonderful time to apply that principle tonight at 6 o'clock. All of you have an opportunity to come tonight if you're a member and to be loving, which means you're not going to rejoice in wrongdoing, but you're going to stand up for what is right and true. That's what a loving church does. A loving church rejoices in truth. So not only do they, rejo- they do not rejoice in wrongdoing or unrighteousness, but they rejoice to what is true. In other words, they hold fast to what is good and what is true. And you know what's true? Not me. God's word. Like a loving church holds fast to the word of God because it's truthful in all that it proclaims. And it points to us to the ultimate living word whose name is Jesus. And I think he claims to be what? The God, but the way and the truth. Yeah. By rejoicing in truth, we hold fast to what is true, which means that everything we do is rooted in the very word of God that is the ultimate truth. When we become wishy-washy with truth, your truth might not be my truth, or whatever that looks like, that is not loving. 
What is loving is to rejoice in what is true and to stand up for it and to hold it firm and to confront sin in a loving way saying, this is not true, this is the word of God. And as we continue to do that, we see love not only does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. In other words, love endures anything for the sake of the gospel. It's very similar to patience, bearing long suffering. What does love do? It bears all things. In other words, it puts up with all kinds of people. Why? For the sake of the gospel. It is rooted in truth, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it puts up with a whole lot of other stuff. It bears all things. So when you're serving, what are you holding on to? Are you holding on to what is the most important, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the rest of the little stuff you're just putting up with? You know, for, for, for example, here's just a silly example. You know, like, preaching is really awful, but at least he's proclaiming truth. So I'm bearing with the awfulness of the preaching, but at least the truth that he's conveying is true. Are you being patient with me as I'm exercising my spiritual gift? Maybe not in the way that is always the best way. So you bear with it. But what are you holding on to? The truth that is being proclaimed. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. That does not mean love is gullible and dumb. But you know what that means? Rather, love generously believes the best of everyone, giving them the benefit of the doubt rather than being sinfully cynical. I think this is a biggest area we struggle with as a society, especially in the church, not just our church, but I think the American church. We are so suspicious of anybody and everybody. And I'm not saying we don't have any reason to be suspicious of, like, should we've just gone through, like, hell for the last two, three years. But what's happened is now... We give nobody the benefit of the doubt. It used to be back in, back in the day, like you're, you're innocent until proven guilty. And now our attitude is you are guilty until you prove yourself to be innocent. But when Paul says love bears all things, it has that attitude of like, okay, brother, okay, sister, I'm giving you the benefit of the doubt of what you said and your intentions behind it. I'm going to believe the best of you knowing that you might have not have yield intentions until proven otherwise but the opposite of is i am so cynical that the second they say something or do something or act in a way that i don't agree what do they do they get their pitchforks they get their lanterns and they are on a uh, a crusade of crucifying that person you know what happens to a people that that does that Eventually, everybody is crucified. Everybody is burnt at a stake because everybody is guilty except you until they find you guilty too. But can you imagine the difference of the church when we actually thought the best of one another? We gave one another the benefit of the doubt. That's what love does. It believes all things. It's not gullible. 
But what it means is it's not suspicious of everyone. Love hopes all things. If I have to be honest, that's probably the one that I struggle with the most. It desires and hopes for others to flourish. In other words, um, when we serve people, sometimes when we're serving them, things don't go the way you think it's supposed to go. You minister to them, you point them to Christ, and what do they do? They walk away. And they want nothing to do with you. I'm leaving. And what's your attitude? Fine, go ahead and leave. Go to hell anyway. But what love, what what, what it means to, to love, to hope all things, saying even as they're going that way, I am still hoping and hold out hope that God is going to do an incredible work in their life and convict them in such a way that's going to bring them to their knees and I'm never going to stop hoping until I know it's finished whether they died or Jesus come back. Like that is what love means. Like, like think about the, the idea of the, the prodigal son. What did the dad do every day? He waited. He loved his son that he hoped that every day his son will return. Where the older brother probably said, Dad, just quit waiting for your son. He's not coming back. That's what it means to hope all things. We never give up on people. Even the worst of the worst. We hope and we trust that God who began a good work is going to finish it. That somehow he's going to take them from their status of falling away and bring them back. And we're going to sit on the porch and we're going to wait and hopefully wait for them to return. And then when they come, we're going to run out and meet them with open arms. That's what love is. How bad is it for the church to continually write people off? May we repent from it and always be hopeful that no matter what status people fall into, we're always hopeful because who do we serve? A mighty God who can raise the dead and open up the eyes of the blind. And if he could not, then there's no hope. But because he can and he has and he will, there's always hope. And the last one is love never ends. Man, I need to move. We're we're only halfway. Let let, let me move on. How how are you guys doing with with exercising your spiritual gifts and love? Like, like, like here's the reality. Let's just be honest. The ultimate example of serving and exercising in a loving way is the triune God. Like that, Romans 5, 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But, but here's the hope for us, okay? Here's why there's hope for us. Here's why we can love, even though we look at the track record and we say, well, I think I might nail one out of the 16, the love never ends part. And that's not even me doing something. But most of the time, I'm fan. But, but, but here's the hope for all of us. Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. So in other words, if you are in Christ, if you have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you have God's love live inside of you, which means if his love has been lavished upon you that lives inside of you, what can you do? 
You can show others. First John 4, 10, love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his atoning sacrifice or propitiation for our sins. In First John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. In other words, the reason why we can exercise our spiritual gifts and love, not because we're awesome and we heard a message and we're going to walk out of here and say, you know, I just need to do better. No, we can love because God has first loved us by sending his son to die on the cross for us. We can love because he's given us his spirit and he's lavished, he's poured out his love into our hearts. And that's why we can love. That's why we can honestly say, hey, Pastor, I really suck at this love part. And I can say, I know you do, but here's the good news. God has sent his son to die for you because he loved you first. That's why you can love. And he's given you his spirit. So what does that mean for us? That means we become what we already are. If we're holy, we pursue holiness. If we are loved by God, we pursue what? To be loving. Let's move on. We're almost done. Paul's now going to show us why love is a superior uh, to, to any spiritual gift. Look at the verse 8. Love never ends. That's why it's superior. But now he's going to explain to, to us why it's superior to spiritual gifts. It says, but as for prophecy, they'll come to an end. As for tongues, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I put aside childish things. For we now see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully as I am fully known. In other words, here's Paul's point like to the, the church in Corinth. Hey, all those flashy spiritual gifts that you think are so important and so superior, like speaking in tongues and prophecy and healing and knowledge, they're not that important. You know why? Because they're going to cease one day. There's going to come a time where they're no longer needed. Why? Well, look at, look at verse 9. Why are they going to cease? For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, verse 10. But when the perfect comes, a.k.a. Jesus, the partial will come to an end. Well, what does he mean by that? Well, Paul means by that, in this point of salvation history, in other words, in the salvation history that we are, the ascension of Jesus and the return of Jesus, we're stuck in the middle, Okay? We know that, that at this point, prophecy is necessary. Prophecy is not the predicting of the future, but the proclamation of God's word. And our knowledge of God and our understanding of God is limited. It's not full. It is sufficient for salvation. In other words, it's sufficient in what we need to know. But none of us know right now all there is to know about God. Our minds will never be able to, to fathom it. But when will... When will it come to to fulfillment or to become full? When the perfect comes. And then Paul kind of illustrates by by, by using an example of a child. He says, what does a child do? A child thinks like a child, acts like a child, reasons like a child. Children think they know everything because they've learned how to read and write and they're thinking they're awesome. And older people who've gained a lot more knowledge, what do they think? 
I know absolutely nothing. And it's not because they're, they're less educated than what they were before, but they're more educated and they realize that the little they, the, the, the much they knew now is little compared to all there is to know. And that's the same with the Christian walk. Our knowledge of God, there's a point where we're, where we're going to be so overwhelmed by God and the knowledge of God where you think, I knew it, and then you mature in your faith and you're like, you know what, I absolutely know nothing. And yet, when the perfect one comes, he's going to make all these things known. It's this idea of, of when the perfect one comes, you're playing in the dark and you're running around with a flashlight and you can see only what the flashlight illuminates. But when Jesus comes, you don't need the flashlight anymore. Why? Because the sun comes and illuminates everything. And this is why when we see him face to face, All that has been revealed through his word. We no longer need anybody to explain his word to us. In other words, when Jesus comes, I'm no longer going to preach. I'm not longer going to point you to Christ and explain to you who Christ and what he's done. You can say, Neil, be quiet. I can see with my very own eyes. Like just, we don't need you anymore, bro. He's right there. I can go and ask him. He's going to proclaim himself to me. So thank you, but no thank you. That's the point, like all these spiritual gifts, which is useful for us right now, that we need right now, is going to end there because they're no longer going to be necessary. Because when Jesus comes, he's going to fully reveal himself and all there is to know about him. And so the point, if you're taking notes, that Paul's making is love is superior to spiritual gifts because these gifts will cease when Jesus returns. But love will never end. These spiritual gifts are temporary and they're needed and they're beneficial. But when Jesus comes back to make all things new, they're no longer needed. But guess what? Love will never fail. In the last verse, let's look at verse 13. Now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Paul loves this triad, faith, hope, and love. But then he says, what's better than faith, hope, and love? Love. Why? Well, think about that. The qualities of faith is is trusting God for what we cannot see. The qualities of hope is confidently expecting God to do what he's promised. Those qualities are temporary. Right now, we're walking by faith and not by sight. We're trusting in what we cannot see. But when Jesus comes back, that that is not seen will be revealed. And guess what's no longer needed? Faith. You no longer have to believe or or trust that the, the, the sufficiency of Jesus on the cross for you is enough that God accepts you. Why? Because you're going to see it. You're no longer going to hope that God is going to fulfill his promises. Why? Because all of his promises are, will be already fulfilled. Right now, we're hoping that God is faithful in keeping his promise, that he'll never abandon us, that he'll never forsake us, that we'll always be in his presence, and he's coming back to make all things new. And when he does it, guess what? No more hope. I don't have to hope that he's going to fulfill his promise because he's actually fulfilling his promise right now because I am with him. I can see him. I'm in his presence. Faith and hope, in a sense, will be unnecessary when Jesus comes. But love never ends. 
And it should be to no surprise to us, out of faith, hope, and love, love really is the all-embracing virtue, and really love is the only attribute of God. This is why love is so important, more important than spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts end. Faith, hope, and love will end. But love endures forever. Why? Because it's an attribute of God, and God lives forever. So here's your application. I think you have it already. Use your spiritual gifts with, with love. Exercise it. I didn't say this, but let me quickly say that. By not exercising your spiritual gifts is unloving. So what I don't want to do is I don't want you to freak out saying, man, this is a high standard of exercising spiritual gifts. I'm rather not going to do anything. No, that's unloving. Use your spiritual gifts. Exercise your spiritual gifts in church. Are you going to do it flawlessly? Are you going to do it always in love? No, you're not. You can exercise in a love because of God's love for you. And you should strive and you should pursue it. And let's encourage one another in it. We have one another to remind one another, hey, I don't know if that's the most loving way. I get your heart. I get you frustrated. But let's be reminded who we're serving. Let's be reminded what manner we should be serving. And when we do that, and we generally serve one another in love, God gets all the glory. Last verse, and then we'll get to the table. 1 Peter 4, verse 10 to 11. Peter says this, Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the very grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's word. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength of God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ and everything. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Serve and love for the glory of God, for that is how he's glorified. Let me pray for us. Lord, we can with the Corinthians say, oh, snap, this is a hard chapter. But Lord, um, thank you for this verses. Thank you for how you've shown us and modeled of what it looks to serve and love. And thank you that we can love because you have first loved us. Can you help us to serve and use our spiritual gifts in a loving way that brings you glory? And Lord, the areas of where we struggle to love, like maybe uh, we don't stand up for what is right. Maybe we don't give people the benefit of the doubt. Maybe we are short-fused. Maybe we are not patient. Maybe we are boastful. Uh, Maybe uh, we don't think that you're going to do what you're going to do and we don't believe all things. Lord, can you help us in those areas? Can you convict us? Can you surround us with loving brothers and sisters that can come alongside of us and help us and serve in a capacity that is loving? And Lord, help us to not beat ourselves up, but to look to you and to believe that because of the love that you have lavished on us, we can lovingly display that love to others. And we ask this in Jesus' name.